Before we enter into the text we're looking at this morning, I just want to share one quick announcement. Uh, kind of as we're getting ready to close out 2016 and move into 2017, just a couple things for us to be aware of. And especially taken into light, the fact that some of you might be traveling this week. We don't know if uh, we'll be seeing you next Sunday morning. A reminder, and this is kind of on behalf of the deacons, but uh, as well, if you are led to give and contribute, a reminder, if you want something, a gift to go towards 2016's budget and general expenses, it has to be postmarked by the 31st of the month. And so since we didn't have that specifically in the bulletin, we just want to remind you of that in terms of the mail. And as we look forward to 2017, I know Andrew shared we're excited about some of the ministry initiatives, some different tweaks we'll be doing in worship, as well as really trying to emphasize the 10 o'clock hour that we're going to, because what is our vision? What is our mission? It's to go. What are we told by Jesus to do? Go and make disciples of all nations, to go and encourage and grow and what it means to follow Jesus. So we're calling our 10 o'clock hour the discipleship hour. We're looking to have an emphasis on discipleship. I would encourage you, uh, if you've not been a part of that 10 o'clock hour, to get the brochure Andrew shared with you. It's out in the narthex. See what the offerings are going to be. You may or may not be able to make all of them all year, but we have start dates and end dates in there, and you know, you might be able to plan your schedule accordingly. I don't know. You know, I'm not a big New Year's resolution kind of guy, but it sounds like a good idea. One of the things you can make, I'll study God's Word with God's people. That may not be a bad idea. Rumor has it. What do you think, Andrew? That sounds like a good idea. We could do that. So just want to remind you of those couple of things. Let's go to the Lord, ask him. You know, when we pray at the beginning of the sermon, let me share with you what we're doing and why we're doing it. And even this part of worship is an important time. The Gospel of John tells us that there is nothing that we don't have that we don't receive from God as a gift. If we go into our time even of preaching and hearing the Word of God, thinking that all of a sudden we can understand it, know how it applies, look at its implications for our lives, and we don't need the Spirit of God, we're being foolish. So this time of a prayer of illumination is really a time of dependence, a time where we're going, Holy Spirit, we're desperate for you. We can't even understand your Word. We don't even know exactly how it needs to pertain, apply to our lives, to our relationships to what we're struggling with, to what we have joy over. And so we ask God by his spirit to illumine our minds, illumine our hearts, and make his word clear to us. And so it is an important part of our worship. So I invite you, would you pray with me? Father, as I've just shared, we ask that Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Jesus, you yourself said in the Gospel of John that the Spirit's role, his job, is to bring glory to you to highlight you and to beautify you and mediate you to our lives by taking from what is yours and making it known to us. The focus of that this morning is your incarnation. What it means that in the fullness of time you sent your son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive as a pure gift the full rights of adoption as child. And because you've sent your son, you did another sending. You sent the Spirit. And it's by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. So Abba, Father, give us your Spirit to give us understanding of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
And now if you turn with me in your Bibles to the passage upon which our teaching is based this morning, which comes out of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then I will skip down and read verses 9 through 18. Verse 1 begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Friends, this is God's word. Let me ask you a question as we dive in this morning. What does it feel like for you to wait for something and to finally have it happen? You know, Jesus tells us to come to him like a little child. He talks about that we have to have a childlike faith, wide-eyed wonder. And one of the things I think children do best is they wait with anticipation. There is just a sense of wonder about children. I'm afraid one of the things I get most convicted of these days, you're all waiting for this great big behavioral confession, right? You want to know what my heart sin is that I struggle with more than anything these days that I have to, you could pray for me of this. I get cynical. I need to pray for that wide-eyed wonder to come back to guard against the cynicism of my heart. Anybody ever struggle with that? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm the one called to do this and be vulnerable. You like that, right? It's my job, not yours. But we kind of have that need to have that sense. Remember I said Advent was about remembrance and anticipation. See, I need spiritually to grow in areas that I'm good at anticipation at, kind of in the ordinary day-to-day -day life, things of the world. Like, I'll share something that, uh, you all know I love sports. Do you know what my favorite sport is? You're thinking it's football because the Giants play today. And I like football, but baseball is my absolute favorite sport. My all-time favorite sport is baseball. There was nothing like, I was seven years old, and my dad took me to my first New York Yankee game. Absolutely loved going up the steps, going into it. And I guess that was old, old, old old Yankee Stadium. I don't know how many times they've refurbished the thing, but just coming out and seeing that, I thought that was absolutely beauty personified right there to see that. So that, I got to tell you something, because some of you I won't see till the new year. Do you know what happens with me with the new year? January 1st hits and I go, six weeks to spring training. Here it comes, and I am anticipating spring training. I love baseball. Now, the Old Testament was about anticipation. As a matter of fact, you don't read the Old Testament rightly 
if you don't understand that the Old Testament at its heart is a story longing and waiting and anticipating a finish. It, it is waiting for an ending. We've been looking at the unfolding mystery of Christ. How it was promised as the seed of the woman, the offspring of this woman, the descendant was promised. We've seen how throughout the pages of the Old Testament, that promise was threatened, that there was continual drama. What will God do? The nation of Israel, they're falling. They're committing adultery. Will God reject them? Will God continue? And the Old Testament then ends without a finish. It ends with this sense of you're hanging on the edge going, what's going to happen? And then you open the pages of the New Testament and you read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is the incarnation of Jesus Christ? The arrival. Now see, I shared this illustration because I was hoping you might join with me in a sense of wide-eyed wonder and anticipation. Sometimes I feel like we're so esoteric as Presbyterians, we fail to get into imagination and sense what was it like for an original hearer and reader, someone who was in that original first century, whether of a Jewish or Gentile descent, having Jesus be born of a woman, born under law, and burst onto the scene the arrival of the mystery. And this text in the Gospel of John teaches us two things about the incarnation. Or we want to look at the doctrine of the incarnation, if you would, from two perspectives. We want to look at what is its claim and what is its challenge. Which is another way of putting it. I'm going to preach the doctrine and I'm going to then say, so what? What difference does the doctrine make in your life? We're going to teach on the doctrine of the incarnation, and then flesh out and draw out some practical implications for what it means to live and embody the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So claims and challenge. Look with me at some of the claims, and it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Immediately, we are faced with some enormous claims. We're confronted, first of all, with this very loaded, very pregnant term, word, or the Greek word logos. And in these initial verses, what we learn was that this word, this logos, was eternal, self-existent, that he is God, and that he had a very active role in creation. And as a matter of fact, as you read the text, what does it remind you of when you read the words, in the beginning... That remind you, Bible scholars, of any, you didn't have to get far in your Bible reading plan, did you this year? How'd you do in your 2016 Bible? I got to the first page of Genesis 1. Well, that's good. You would at least be able to tell something going on here because these words begin in the beginning, and they are very purposely meant to allude and remind you of something. The book of Genesis. This is very directly alluding to the book of Genesis. What was the book of Genesis about? It was all about beginnings. It was all about creation. So one of the things that is being claimed here is that the birth of Jesus Christ is a new beginning, is a new creation. Something about the old is going to be gone. Something new has begun. It's not all fleshed out yet. But we have a new genesis, a new beginnings. And then you jump down to verse 14, and we're told that this, whatever this is, and I haven't covered it yet, 
this thing called the Logos, the Word, became flesh, and we're told that he dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is literally the word tabernacle. And again, you would have had to get a little further in your Bible reading plan now. Not a whole lot further, because the tabernacle ought to remind you of what? The book of Exodus. And what was Exodus about? Exodus was about the people who were the seed of the offspring in Genesis 3. This mystery is starting to unfold. This mystery is starting to develop. It's starting to progress. But remember I told you part of the Old Testament was this drama. What is going to happen to this people? What is going to happen to the seed? And we see when Genesis ends and Exodus begins that they're in slavery. Their very existence was threatened. Because they're out of their homeland, they're in Egypt, and they're in bondage, they're in oppression, they're in slavery. What is going to happen to the promise? It's not just about geopolitical things, it is about the promise of salvation, it is about the promise of God. And God raises up a prince, a judge, a leader, his name was Moses, and Moses leads the Israelites out from Egypt, out of bondage, through the Red Sea, the Exodus, deliverance into salvation. He receives the law on Mount Sinai. They enter into this covenantal relationship, and then the entire second half of the book of Exodus is all about the instructions given so that a tabernacle could build for the presence of God, because what is Christmas about? Emmanuel, God with us. And in the book of Exodus, it was going to be put in the form of a tabernacle, or what they called a tent of meeting. That was a foreshadowing and a picture of God living with us. Because when we get down to this, this text says now, this anticipation, that's what we're looking for, forward to, is that the Word became flesh and tabernacled. Didn't stay in heaven, but came to earth and lived and breathed and was active and was creating and was designing and was building and was ministering amongst us. The implications of this are enormous. Let me just give, even before I give the challenge to this, let me just share with you some of the comfort to this. You know, Christmas is a very interesting time of year because it's a time filled with, for so many, it's a time of joy, it's a time of hope, it's a time of wonder, but it can also be a very painful time. It can be a time where you see memories past and you are reminded of loss or reminded of grief and we go through difficult times. The doctrine of the Incarnation is one of the greatest resources, practically speaking, that we can have for dealing with suffering and dealing with loss. Because do you know what the doctrine of the Incarnation means? It means that there is not anything that we go through that Jesus doesn't go through intimately with us. That he is, in a sense, genuinely walking in our shoes. He's taking his own medicine upon himself. You know, it's so, and I think so often in our more conservative doctrinal circles, we so emphasize the divinity or the deity of Jesus. And of course, this says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So he's divine. He's deity. He's the second person of the Trinity. But I think sometimes we do it to the detriment of recognizing that he was fully human. And one of the implications of this is we need to be very pro-human, very pro-people. It breaks my heart sometimes that we get reputations of being all 
intellectual all here, but not really about loving and caring and reaching out and being flesh with people. The Word became flesh and didn't stay in the Motel 6. The Word became flesh and took up permanent residence. As a matter of fact, and I know that we have to embrace this by faith, you can't audibly hear it, visibly see it, but heaven and earth intertwine. These two regions come together, and the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 12, says he is actually walking amongst us right now. Do you believe that? That he is our God and we are his people, and Christmas is the demonstration of that. That he's actually walking amongst us, so that no matter what you go through, you don't do it alone. The Word became flesh and tabernacled, lived, dwelt amongst us. And we need to recognize how objectively true this is. Tim Keller put it this way. He says that Jesus' story is that God became flesh, that he became flesh. He became particular. The ideal became real. The general became particular. And that means that his story is that we can know him. He is knowable. We can have real, intimate communion and fellowship with him. He writes, fellowship with God is no mere fiction or result of flights of fancy. It is as real and sure as any fellowship we have with human beings. For the one with whom they have fellowship with is one of whom they have heard, they have seen, they have looked at, they have touched. The Christian faith refuses to be put in the category of a belief system of nice, abstract ideas to which someone might respond. I'm glad that is true for you and works for you. Christianity claims to be grounded in history and to be objectively true. It follows then that our fellowship with God is really to be enjoyed. The word logos, the word word, the philosophers of that time tell us that it's more than just an abstract idea, it's a reason for being. It's your purpose, it's your meaning in life. The Westminster divines asked the question in the first catechism question, what is the chief end of man? And they said the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Again, how sad is it that we can so focus on the glorify God and so neglect the enjoy him forever when one of the implications of the word becoming flesh was so that we could have very real, very tangible communion and relationship and fellowship with him. We can enjoy him forever because you know what? He died on the cross. The incarnation will always point to the crucifixion. He died on the cross to remove every barrier that would ever prevent him from enjoying us. Do you recognize that he enjoys you forever? That he enjoys you? As a matter of fact, he is enjoying you as much right this very second as he will when you are glorified. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote, for those whom he foreknew, he also called, he also justified, and those he justified. And real interesting in that Romans 8 passage, he says, those he justified, he also glorified. And it uses it in a past tense, and he skipped sanctification. And one of the things I think Paul is doing is saying to God, it's as if you're already glorified. The way he's looking at you, relating to you, and dealing with you is that you've already arrived, which means he can't love you any more or any less than he does 
this very second. That when you are completely sinless, perfect, whole, healthy, vibrant in every way, he won't love you any more than he does right now that with your life mixed with impurities and unhealth and all that. Do you believe he enjoys you forever right this very moment? And every barrier has been taken away so that he can dwell and tabernacle with you beginning now. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the claim of Christmas. That's the claim of the incarnation. What is the challenge? Some of the implications of it. I think one of the implications is the fact that every aspect of our life, every aspect of our ministry, every aspect of who we are and what we do is to be incarnational. If you think about it, Jesus said later in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So we have that claim that Jesus doesn't just reveal truth, doesn't just show truth, doesn't just preach truth, he is the truth. But when we go further and we go, what is the nature of that truth? How does he reveal the fact that he is the truth? You're left with the fact that he incarnates it. Because the way we know God is through Jesus, and the way we know Jesus is through the incarnation. So Jesus, in everything that he is as the truth, what does it mean to incarnate? He makes it flesh. He makes it blood. He makes it tangible. He makes it real. And then he tells us that he's the head of the church, and we are his body, which means we're intimately connected with him. In fact, Peter goes so far as to say we're actually partakers of the divine nature. That's a little radical. I don't know what you think. But we're actually participating in the divine nature. But what it means is we are into, we're not separate from him. We're intimately connected with him. Which means we embody, we incarnate. C.S. Lewis went so far as to call us little Christs. That seems daring to me. But think about it. We are to incarnate the truth. We are to enflesh, because if you think about what Jesus did, he lived, he incarnated God in the flesh. He died, he was risen, he was raised from the dead, he was ascended into heaven, and what did he leave behind? His body, the church, empowered by his spirit. And if you think about it, John has this incredible verse that I'm afraid so often we tend to gloss over because I think it's a little too radical for us. These are, this is part of the teaching of Jesus in the upper room discourse, John chapter 14, verse 12, where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Let me repeat that. Did you hear that? Were you paying attention? Or do we do it like we do our Bible reading? We just kind of read in gloss. Because did you hear what that said? Whoever believes in me. So slow down. Do you believe in Jesus? Okay. What will be true of you if you believe in Jesus? You will do the works that I do. What does Jesus do? He reveals God. He embodies truth. He is the truth. He reveals God. What will we do? We will reveal God. We will incarnate we will embody and explain truth. And then he goes so far to say, and greater works 
than these will he do. Why? Because Jesus is going to the Father. And when Jesus goes to the Father, he's able to send out his spirit so that these works are not limited to just a strip of land. They go throughout all the earth. Do you recognize that this is a promise? That we do what Jesus did. We're united to Jesus, which means we reveal and embody God. The challenge for our lives is to live incarnationally, to reveal God and to embody truth to the world. How do we do that? Well, in a very practical sense, in a very practical sense, I love how Eugene Peterson quoted this verse or translated this verse or paraphrased this verse in the message when he said, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. If we are going to embody and reveal God, we've got to be involved relationally with people. We've got to be involved in their lives. We can't be aloof. We can't be distant. Everything we do is incarnational. Everything we do is relational. There's nothing that we do that is not contextualized to enter into the lives of others. That's what Jesus did with us. So that means everything we do is revealing God by how we live and by how we relate. So I want you to think about this. What do you reveal about God? When people look at you, they're looking at a part of the body of Christ. And we're given Jesus' personality in several different places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13 is a great personification, a great picture of the personality of Jesus. Love is patient. Love is kind. You might as well say Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not irritable. Jesus is not rude. Jesus is never ugly. The fruit of the Spirit. Jesus is love. Jesus is joy. Jesus is peace. Jesus is patient. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the poor in spirit. Jesus is the one who mourns. Jesus is the one who hungers and thirsts for justice who puts himself in the shoes of others. Incarnational ministry, what do you embody about God? What do you reveal about God? Do you reveal the personality of God? Do we as a church reveal the personality of God by how we relate? And a great summary of the personality of God is given in the rest of this text. When it says, from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. It says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Perhaps the best way to embody the incarnation is to be all about grace and truth together. Not just one, not just the other. And what is the best place that embodies and explains grace and truth? It's the cross. Nowhere do we see grace and truth embodied and explained more than at the cross. Think about it. The cross explains and embodies what sin is, doesn't it? Because the cross was not any ordinary death. Death by crucifixion. Death was not just physical pain or physical agony. It was rejection by God. It was godlessness. It was God-forsakenness. It was shame. It was mocking. It was disgrace. It was not just death by any ordinary means. 
the Old Testament, and Paul quotes this in Galatians 3, says it was a curse from God to be crucified on a tree. That explains that kind of death was necessary. Why? Because we were that sinful. As Jack Miller says, and you know I love to quote this all the time, we're more sinful than we ever dared imagine. Which doesn't mean we're as sinful as we ever could possibly be. It just means every aspect of us has been tainted by rebellion against God, not wanting to enjoy God, not wanting to glorify God. The cross is the best explanation of that. But the cross is also the best explanation and embodiment of God doing whatever it took to enjoy you forever. Because it's on the cross that Jesus bore what you and I deserve. He took the payment. He took the punishment. He took the penalty of that God-forsakenness. He was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. Grace and truth together kiss and marry on the cross. He was gone to the Father. His life is now being lived out, incarnated. We're the body of Christ connected to the head. Lived out in the power of the Spirit through the church. So that maybe this can be what a little bit of our ministry looks like as we move into 2017. My favorite Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. And I think every time we sing it, we ought to be singing the second verse. The second verse to O Holy Night is truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. Lord, I do pray that we would be a people praising your name forever, incarnating and revealing you to, a, to one another and to a watching world. By how we live, how we relate, how we embody and explain you, the living God, that we would not only believe in truth, we would live truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.